Ulysses coaxes Ulysses coaxes coaxes. It's it's all these Greek words. I'm trying to read everything like a Greek word now. Coaxes. This time we watched Season 4, Episode 8, Hercules Unchained. The Greek version of Fifty Shades Freed. But first, some follow-up. Richard from Tupelo writes, I was enjoying your Catalina Caper episode, and during your Tupperware discussion, I was surprised that you never mentioned that Crow's torso is made of Tupperware. The Tupperware Floralier, to be precise. A product designed to hold lovely floral displays. Crow's body is made from one and a half sets. Love the show. Oh, well, thank you, Richard. Yes. Did you know this fun fact? No, I had always focused on uh, the fact that he has what is not L.O. Cross helmet, but it actually is for his basically catcher's mitt and the bowling pin. I guess I didn't really concentrate on anything below that. <laughs> you want to keep a respectful distance with Crow? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Ah, very well. Well, thank you very much for your letter, Richard. We keep getting these nice letters. This is some of the the best parts of doing this show. Oh, definitely. Thank you so much. And also of note, uh, Beth, you've you've done a little of what we call podcast whoring. Why don't you tell us about this? (laughs) Yes, I was recently on another Megaphonic FM podcast called The Opposite of Lonely, uh, which focuses on how to keep social in today's modern kind of disconnected era. And I talk about how things change after you have a baby. Spoiler alert, they change a lot. And where can people find this? You can find it on megaphonic.fm slash unlonely. Uh, Oh, more podcast news. Mm. So if you are still yearning to hear our voices on other shows, you have another chance, or more specifically two chances, because on the podcast The Scene of the Scene, which is also from Megaphonic, you can hear uh, hot takes on movies new and old. Uh, in the oldest case, uh, myself and Chris and Michael from This Is Your Mixtape, we watched Newfoundland's greatest achievement, <laughs> uh, the film The Adventure of Faustus Bidgood. So that, there's a lively discussion on that cult dark comedy, uh, which is one of my favorite movies ever. But then more recently, uh, you joined myself and Chris, and we all discussed the documentary Three Identical Strangers. That's right. If you haven't heard of it, it's a documentary that's currently getting a lot of buzz for being a very intriguing uh, movie. It got attacked by 20,000 bees. <laughs> uh, it's getting a lot of buzz for uh, basically having a lot of twists throughout. You don't know exactly where the story about three uh, identical triplets that were separated at birth is actually going to go. But I gotta say, I've never heard of Faustus Bid good before, and I, I looked up the Wikipedia. It sounds really interesting. It's it's one of the most bizarre movies out there. It is all on YouTube uh, that I'll recommend to you off pod. Um, mm-hmm. uh, although it might be the only way to see it at this point. But yeah, it's uh, I, I think that's recommended viewing for everybody. It's a really surreal movie. Very modern, I think. So if you want to listen to either of those breakdowns, you can go to megaphonic.fm slash scene. <laughs> Not S-E-E-N, as in we've already seen it, but S-C-E-N-E, as in this is quite the scene we're in. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, should we talk about this movie instead? I am flexing in anticipation. Let's do it. Let me tell you about a little movie called Hercules Unchained. It's Hercules and his wife, Eole. Oh, and also a young Ulysses is traveling with them. And why not get more Greek heroes for your buck and throw in the Oedipal strife as well? That's right. Herc is asked to intervene in a quarrel between two brothers, Eteocles and Polynices, rulers of the city of Thebes and the sons of the tragic hero of Greek drama, Oedipus. But before he can complete his task, Herc drinks from a magic spring, loses all his memory, and becomes a lover of Amy Winehouse. Oh, I mean, Queen Amphali of Lydia. Much like Queen Samara from the last Hercules movie we watched, see our episode on Hercules against the Moonmen, Amphale is a heartless man-eater who turns into a kitten upon taking Hercules as her lover. As a result, Herc avoids becoming one of her many trophy men who she slays and turns into statues when she tires of them. Ulysses tries what he can to help the big guy regain his memory, but in the meantime, the unhinged Enteocles is planning to throw poor Eole to the tigers for his amusement. Snap out of it, Herc! Ulysses coaxes Herc back to his memories by getting him to do some strongman feats like bending metal and tossing around some kettlebells. And he leaves a treacherous Omphali behind, who, in despair of losing her lover, sashays away into a vat of preserving fluid. Hercules makes it back to Thebes, slays some tigers, rescues his wife, and basically stays out of the way as the brothers kill each other in a duel. Good job, everybody! Meanwhile, it's the most dreaded day of all on the Satellite of Love, according to Crow. It's the annual Wash and Wax Day, where Joel buffs the bots. Servo initially shares Crow's disgust, but ends up kind of liking it. Down in D13, the Mads are receiving temp help in the form of the world's most iconic Hercules, Steve Reeves. Apologies to Kevin Sorbo. For their part of the invention exchange, Dr. Forrester and Frank present decorator roaches, aka swatch roaches, garish multicolor roaches to hang up in the home. Joel and the bots present the Stevometer, a device that has cataloged everything invented by Steve Allen, thus allowing prospective inventors to see if Steve Allen already thought of your idea. Turns out Steve Allen already thought of Movie Sign and the Stevometer. Our next segment sees Gypsy, dressed as the Hellenistic ideal, doing her best rendition of the song from the movie and bashing her head against a liar. I'm the Hellenistic ideal! Uh oh. Oh, let's go! You know, folks, you just don't hear music like that anymore. In segment three, Joel and the bots find the waters of forgetfulness from today's movie. Other enchanted objects they discover include the Dairy Queen Blizzard of Loneliness, the Fruit Stripe Gum of Stability, and the green bean and French onion casserole of happiness. The bots press Joel for some facts about the birds and the bees during segment four, as his robot children wonder why Hercules spends so much time hanging out with that nice lady. Joel, perhaps hoping the bots will read between the lines, tells them that Hercules comes by to eat, visit, and tell secrets. Crow and Servo continue to press their creator, so Joel informs the bots that Herc is the nice lady's live-in dentist and tells them to eat their raisins. In the final segment, Joel and the bots theorize about the phenomenon of Hercules movies. Back in Deep 13, Frank and Dr. Forrester ask Steve Reeves what he thinks, but he just reminisces about cheap booze. Frank fawns over Steve, much to Dr. F's annoyance. I didn't know that blizzards were a thing back in the early 90s. Oh yeah, I remember ads for the land of Dairy Queen, uh, or actually specifically references to the land of Dairy Queen on this show. 
Uh, and when I was a kid, there was always an advertisement for a Dennis the Menace ice cream cake. <laughs> I do remember that. Although I never had Dairy Queen nearby in my area, so it was not something that I got to indulge in very often. <laughs> you had the rival Archduke Milk. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Lord Milky's <laughs> House of Beverages. <laughs> but enough milk chat. We have watched our second Hercules movie. I had no other segue. Why not? That's a, that's as good as any. Uh, by the way, uh, the the, uh, the Blizzard was uh, came out in uh, 1985. Whoa! Okay, wow. and sold more than 175 million Blizzards in its first year. Mm. But. This is our second Hercules experiment uh, coming to us from the land of Dairy Queen, a.k.a. Italy. Um, And what did you make of this particular experiment, Beth? Shrug. I don't know. I I liked parts of this episode. I think it's kind of average overall, but there's some good bits. Like, I really like when Crow starts humming Inagata De Vida when everybody is rowing. (laughs) That's pretty good. Uh, There is a reference to Lombada, the Forbidden Dance, which will always get me. Uh, There's another (laughs) great song gag uh, in which uh, Joel and the Bots are singing the Barbarella theme. Right. But what really, you know, separates the uh, the Herculean from the Herculeboys, the Hercules from the Herculads, is uh, the sketches in this episode, all of which are great. Yes. Yes, I, I think I, I agree with you. The movie itself is, the, the riffs are kind of average. They're cute. I, you know, I laughed a couple times about, uh, what was the one point where they're driving up to a whole bunch of horses and they make a joke about a tailgate party and mm-hmm. uh, just really lighthearted stuff like that was was a good way of just kind of cutting the tension and but nothing was really they didn't have anything that really sustained me but those segments are so funny some of the best <laughs> ones they've ever done are in are in this one especially my favorite uh the gypsy serenade yes and i i think you know one thing that you want from an MST3K episode is at the very least one uh, random goofball appearance from Gypsy. And this does not disappoint. You've got Gypsy banging into things and singing the two things she does best. Yeah. So we'll, we're going to get into these uh, segments and what makes them so excellent later. But I would just say that I was really surprised to find out that this is the favorite episode of Jim Mallon. And it is one of Joel's two favorites. Yeah, I can I can only assume and I can only put words in their mouths that a big part of this is just the fact that they got a movie that when they were kids would have been a big deal. Like Steve Reeves was and the Steve Reeves Hercules movies were kind of famous peplum entertainment like they they were they were big deals uh internationally so maybe there's a certain sense much like they did with marooned where it's like oh we're getting away with riffing this famous movie that might be part of it yeah i mean it 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 seems like it was quite a get i mean unlike what uh tom servo says in the final segment where he's essentially suggesting that the only reason that we've been exposed to these movies is because of a cheap licensing deal. These are actually <laughs> extremely popular movies. And so it, it would have been something, it would have been a get, especially back in the early MST3K years to get something like this. Cause it wasn't a boring black and white fifties movie, right? Yeah. This is, this is a big step up from, uh, you know, pilfering the archives of Robert Lippert. Ugh. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Although I will say it has been interesting now that we have two Hercules movies under our belt to compare the two. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and I should mention uh, one of the reasons why we do this is that uh, every year for Labor Day, uh, we celebrate the original laborer, the Dodeca laborer, Hercules. So we're going to look at all of the experiments coinciding with Labor Day. Yes. What you were saying? So it will be interesting as we continue on our Labor Day to see what kind of themes, what kind of tropes come out of it, because already I'm seeing some similarities, even though I think the production of these two movies is quite far apart. Mm-hmm. You know, you get a lot of caves, you get a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race-esque evil queens, and uh, you have a lot of mishmashing of various Greek myths together. And one thing I'm trying to remember, because uh, I'm already struggling to remember the story of Hercules against the Moon Men. Uh, but I don't think there's anyone who had uh, eyebrows so fierce as Sylvia Lopez in this movie as Omphale. Yeah, she would have done well now with, in, our, in our Instagram brow-heavy era. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so uh, as an episode, it's not their best work. I would not recommend this to somebody who's not you know, a, a, a diehard MST3K fan. But please do check in on the segments. Yeah, having to compare the two, one, I, I think that this is more likely a better movie watching uh, Unmisted uh, and probably a little bit easier to follow. But I I would say that of the two episodes we watched, as great as the sketches are in this episode, I think I prefer Hercules Against the Moon Med. Like, there are more riffs that I remember and a lot of great weird sketches, not to mention the whole deep hurting yeah. <laughs> aspect introduced there and some playful uses of the mads during those sketches. So, Adam, I know that you are a drama major. How familiar are you with classical Greek drama? Well, I did uh, look at these in late high school and early university, which is to say over a decade ago, which is to say I don't remember much of any of it. Actually, uh, ironically, it was MST3K who kind of made me aware of Greek drama because of in... Manos, the Hands of Fate, there's a joke about Lysistrata in it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what the hell is this? And then in my first year comparative literature course, we read Lysistrata, which is an ancient Greek play about a whole bunch of women who decide to not have sex with their husbands to stop a war. Yes, and that is a, a great and very fun play. <laughs> yeah, they, we don't often think of, of, of Greeks as doing comedy, but they did a lot of comedy. We just mostly focus on the tragedies. Mm. Like Oedipus Rex. Yes, which admittedly is pretty funny. Because when you think about it, being called a motherfucker is only the second worst thing to happen to Oedipus. <laughs> I actually was riveted by that play. When I first started reading like really, really old texts, I never expected it to be so light and fleet and and riveting. It just feels very immediate and clean and crisp and and, and compelling. I really enjoyed Oedipus Rex and I really enjoyed Antigone and I still have like, you know, strong memories of those, but I haven't, I haven't read them since my high school days. I was apparently great as Creon in an Antigone once, but that was a long time ago. (laughs) From what I understand, uh, like reading up on the production of both Herculeses with Steve Reeves is that they're just a mishmash of myth, a myth mash, if you will. Yeah. So both of us, I think, you and I, Adam, we have some exposure to you know ancient Greek culture and mythology, but I believe our producer, Chris, has more sustained encounter with them. 
you don't actually read Greek, do you, Chris? Oh, oh no, not really. I, I've studied it a little bit, but I, I only had about a year of Greek or so. Better than we have. Yeah, I really drank from the waters of forgetfulness on this one. <laughs> uh, can you give us some summaries about these very uh, important, one would even say foundational Greek myths? And how they're used in this uh, slapdash, ridiculous Italian remake. Yeah, flex the Steve Reeves in your brain and tell us. Sure thing. Uh, well, so the opening credits tell us that this movie is freely adapted from three sources. From the myth of Hercules and Omphale, from the play Oedipus at Colonus by Sophocles, and the Seven Against Thieves by Aeschylus. So uh, I took the pain of rereading uh, Oedipus at Colonus and Seven Against Thieves, which are... Not the shining gems that Antigone or Oedipus Rex are from the Greek drama canon, uh, but I will tell you what happens in them, and then you can tell me how you think this relates to the movie. So let's start with Oedipus of Clonus, uh, which was written shortly before Sophocles died in 406 BCE. Oedipus, former king of Thebes, is cursed by the gods and tricked into marrying his own mother, and now he is blind and infamous, and his two sons, Polynices and Ateocles, have forced him to give up the throne, and they've exiled him. And so Oedipus wanders around Greece with his two daughters, Antigone and Ismene, and they stumble upon a sacred grove in Clonus, which is little town just outside Athens. It happens to be the town where Sophocles was born, but I'm sure that has nothing to do with why this play was written. Anyway, ah, says Oedipus, the gods foretold that I should die here. Oh, no, you won't, said the locals who all run up to him. We know all about you, and you're not going to defile our sacred grove. Get out of here. Hey, 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 says Oedipus, uh, the gods foretold that wherever I die will be blessed. So the whole play turns out to be everybody squabbling about where Oedipus should be buried. His uncle slash brother-in-law, because, you know, Oedipus, uh, Creon, wants him to be buried in Thebes, and he tries to steal away Oedipus's daughters. Theseus, the king of Athens, wants him to stay right there and protect Athens, and so he runs off and gets the daughters back. Polynices shows up. He's about to attack Thebes with his Argive army, and he wants Oedipus's blessing on his endeavor, and Oedipus tells him he can fuck right off. <laughs> Then Oedipus wanders off stage, and he dies, and his daughters lament, and that's the whole play. So, action-packed. Greeks, it's really important where you bury that body. It is. Okay. So then, Seven Against Thebes by Aeschylus, which was written about 60 years before Oedipus at Clonus, has even less action. Eteocles is inside Thebes. Who? Eteocles. You remember the redhead who's... The king of Thebes, and he's really crazy and campy and likes tigers. Okay. He is inside Thebes. Polynices, his brother, and the Argive armies are at the walls of Thebes. They're going to attack. Thebes has seven gates around these walls. And a soldier lists, in excruciating detail, each of the heroes leading each of the armies at each of the gates. And Ateocles responds by saying which Theban hero is going to counter them. That's most of the play. The seventh gate is led by Polynices himself, and so Ateocles decides he's going to lead that gate. So he runs off. And then a messenger arrives to let us know that the city's been saved, but Polynices and Ateocles have killed each other, and everybody gets sad. And that's the entire play. <sighs> it's just Riveting. it's just like plotting. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're plotting out a really complicated Pokemon battle or something. <laughs> as far as Hercules and Omphale goes, she's a queen of Lydia, which is in modern Turkey and not on an island like the film says. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of different traditions. He might have served as her slave for a year, and they may have had a kid. Uh, but basically everybody agrees that they had some sexy times. I think it's pretty cute that they don't mention, you know, the Odyssey, which is basically considered the foundational text of the Westerns of, of the Western world. Well, that doesn't happen yet. 
the Odyssey would be in the future in 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 Ulysses' lifetime. I guess, but they, you know, Odysseus is in it, so you have mm. to kind of mention that. Although I guess he was in the Iliad too. Yeah, that also is in the future. Yeah. <laughs> this is this this theoretically has taken place. I mean, all right, according to the generally agreed upon chronologies of these things, this is like a hundred years before the Trojan War, mm-hmm. and Ulysses shouldn't be born yet. Yeah. With with this, the the, uh, the real Odyssey is the friends we made along the way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's damn confusing. Because ironically, of course, the plays were probably the newest Greek myth, whereas uh, Hercules and Odysseus were, well, Hercules is very old, and and the Odyssey and the Iliad were written by Homer, which is like, what, a thousand years before Sophocles comes around? So we're dealing with a lot of weird time frames here. Uh, well, sure, but it's not as if, it's not as if Sophocles and Aeschylus invented Oedipus. Like, those tales are old, too. We just don't have an extant epic. We don't have one that survived from from back then. Ah, uh, good point. Well, one of the interesting, one of the few interesting things I found about this movie is Hercules is constantly like, the gods have cursed me! And there's no actual gods in the movie. Like, they're not personified by an actor. And that is what little I know about the Greek civilization, is that that kind of tracks with their presence in literature, which, whereas, you know, earlier stuff, they're very active, they're human-like players, and by mm-hmm. the time you get to uh, Sophocles' time, they are not there. You know, they're, kind of, they're, they're referred to, but they're not part of the play anymore. They're not directly interfering with humans and, and are human themselves in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting, because it, it's still... It's still very, if I can say modern Greek, modern ancient Greek. This is a modern ancient <laughs> Greek. Okay. Uh, hell, actor schmactors. What I really wanted was a giant floating stone head like in Zardos. I know. That would have been a god to see on the screen. That's something I've always noticed about these Hercules movies is they seem kind of reluctant to actually embody the gods. I don't know if it's because uh, th- these are Italian movies and they want to avoid pissing off the catholic church i don't know but that it's something i've noticed uh yeah it, it is you know a, a little bit odd given like the power of cinema is that you could have used uh you know interesting photographic techniques uh even something as simple as like forced perspectives you have god's present even briefly but we don't get that what's uh what we get is is you know, theatrical, much like an old play in that, you know, the, the gods are referred to, um, but they're not necessarily like present. Um, and I, but funnily enough, like I don't really feel them in the text of the movie. Like you don't really get the sense that the gods are influencing how the story is going. No, not at all. Which uh, is kind of essential to Greek myth, which is, I guess the biggest departure here. It's just, they're, they're playing with a whole bunch of pieces and they don't care how they get thrown together. Mm-hmm. Although we did run into one academic source that suggested that some kind of essential truth was coming out of this mishmash. Did you <laughs> did you grok that argument at all? No. Yeah. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Okay, so it's James J. Klaus is the author, and the title is Hercules Unchained, Contaminatio, Nostos, Catabasis, and the Surreal. So we read it, kind of. <laughs> uh unfortunately it's behind a paywall so we can't we can't give it to you guys we can just provide you a link but uh but if you do see us on the street ask us for it real nice and we'll do it <laughs> his theory is that even though it's basically just to throw together a whole bunch of famous names uh some truth about how greek myth works comes out of that because weirdly enough they all 
kind of follow the same beats in terms of like you have to go off to war, you have to become alienated from yourself, and then you come, you have your homecoming or your nostos where you become a changed man and you basically go through a Frodo-like return to Hobbitville. Or Hobbiton? <laughs> I, I think it's Hobbiton. I Hobbiton. could be wrong. Your Frodo-like return to Hobbiton. Mm. One of the things I, I did, uh, uh, and possibly the only thing that really stood out from the article uh, by Klaus, is I do like that uh, he described the uh, he described the the film as a uh, as a, as I quote a conflict between the epic and the cartoon, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is true of like a lot of fantasy cinema. But he seems to use that as uh, kind of a a argument against the movie as opposed to i think one of its strengths i think he's also trying to argue that there's something kind of in uh, post-modern com- happening here where you you remix all of these myths and then something more interesting comes out of that clash mm-hmm. but i hate postmodernism, so i don't really want to support that idea <laughs> i mean you're you're doing a podcast about mst3 anyway <laughs> but that's the best kind so of, that's not postmodern. <laughs> It's Look at this, I'm it. shaking my microphone in, in dismay. <laughs> so I found the article to be a fun, if unconvincing, reading, uh, trying to argue that although the film was not intentionally doing this really nuanced reading, that you could make this nuanced reading of it. I think mm-hmm. I think the uh, the argument is perhaps more postmodern in that sense than the than its claims about the movie. Yeah. But I think one of the things that it, it points out, which I think is completely true, is that that kind of myth mashup was totally common in Greek sources. There is no single timeline about these things. You can't. We don't have a sense of Hercules was this. We have a handful of extant works that agree sometimes and disagree quite a lot about the details of all of these things, and usually wouldn't have put Hercules and Ulysses together. And I don't think there is any piece that specifically does put them together from the ancient times, but that is totally a thing that could have happened. And they could have totally uh, given a part that normally would go to this one mythic figure and transfer a lot of those details onto another one. And that kind of play and that kind of reuse of these tales was totally common. So you can't really get too hung up about how inaccurate, quote unquote, this movie gets these details because they're meant to be played with that way. Yeah, I and I can't imagine getting angry about that. I just think that this mishmash is really boring and kind of drains all the characters of their interest. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All the characters are really thin. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Uh, then the best of ancient Greek literature that has survived thousands of years. Yes. <laughs> So, Adam, you wouldn't be able to tell it from this very bad print that uh, MST3K uses, but apparently the director of this movie, Mario Bava, is quite well known for being a stylish and influential director. Yeah. Well, you'd be wrong there, because Mario Bava didn't direct this movie. Oh, he didn't? No. <laughs> it was directed by uh, Pietro Francisci, uh, and the was credited as Special Effects and Lighting. That's Mario Bava's department here. I see. Okay. Although Bava did do a lot more than that. In fact, he's kind of uncredited as like the director of photography, as well as handling like a lot of the camera work in addition to special effects and lighting. He he was a one-man band uh, on this motion picture. 
And Bava is a super interesting figure. I and and I think a really important one in cinema. Uh, do you know anything about him? Uh, he did Danger Diabolique, right? Yes, that's right. He is uh, he is most famous uh, to Misty's, I think, for uh, that. You've seen that episode, right? I have not seen that episode. No. Ah, the famous final episode of the original run of Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Yeah, it's this great. I would describe it as a pop art heist, <laughs> and I would say that Danger Diabolic is probably the best movie that mst3k ever did Mm. it's a wildly entertaining movie that is in no way bad it's it's really great um but just to get a sense of bava's visual style here is a montage of a few shots from the film black sabbath and as you can see from these four shots the kind of uh, big dynamic colors he tends to use. You'll see in the slack now. Ooh, look at those shadows. I would describe him as having a Hulk palette because you get a lot of purples and greens. Yeah, purples and greens and reds. Those seem to be his favorites. Oh yeah, you get a lot of stuff that is just so dynamic and just so pretty to look at. Uh, with, no matter what kind of movie that he was doing, and though he's primarily known for, in terms of being a director for working in the horror genre, I mean, he did thrillers, he did like a Viking movie, uh, he actually shot a uh, Hercules movie with Reg Park called Hercules in the Haunted World uh, that has a strong cult following because of its visuals. Uh, yeah, Bava's Bava's style is really striking and really beautiful, and there's this great quote from Martin Scorsese about Bava as a storyteller. He said, Bava was not a great storyteller. He was good, very good at something else. He used light, shadow, color, sound, both on and off screen, movement, and texture to lead his viewers down uncharted paths into a kind of collective dream. And I think that's the best way to describe what Bava's movies are like, is that they're not so surreal that it's like the unpredictable kind of uncanny and terrifying David Lynch dream worlds, but they're more these kind of like giddly garish and, and colorful and bright and hypnotic visuals that you get both in terms of his camera work and the lighting that's used uh, to tell these kind of fantastical stories and in a way it improves on the kind of source material that he has because whether he's doing uh, a horror picture or whether he's doing uh, a movie about vikings (laughs) uh and he could be doing something realistic or he could be doing something uh like his final movie that involves the devil uh regardless of the content it's ultimately like it's a great way to guide you into a surreal world um and i think all of his movies kind of lead you by the hand into a reality that even in his most down-to-earth movies are somewhat uh, fairy tale like so you can see some of this i think in the movie i mean the colors you're showing me especially the greens and blues and reds come out in the Amphala cave scenes especially i'd say yeah, and I have a couple of uh, shots here from the film in a cleaned-up widescreen copy, and you can see, Ooh. yeah, it looks it, it actually looks pretty striking. Like it's a lot more subdued than his directorial work, but it's nonetheless like like this is quality cinematography. With uh, again, his you see a fair bit of purple and green in there. <laughs> yeah, it looks like she's seducing a young man under the sea. <laughs> Links in the show notes. Indeed. 
Um, but yes, despite his many accomplishments, he never took himself or his career very seriously, and he didn't like to talk about himself as either a craftsman or as a director. Hmm. Like in one of the few times he's been interviewed uh, where he commented on anything or he agreed to an interview, he said, I've been in the film business for so long. I know everything and everybody. So how could I possibly take this absurd circus seriously? (laughs) Before we wrap things up, tying it to this movie, it was Bava who told Steve Reeves to grow a beard. Yeah. If you watch uh, Steve Reeves. Uh, earlier work is steve reeves is clean shaven mm-hmm. and in like later photos i saw of him he was clean shaven and he like bava just thought that steve reeves face wasn't right and so uh he he worked really closely with reeves and was the one who kind of gave him i think a lot of screen presence because bava specifically blocked scenes in both the hercules movies they did so that reeves was always the tallest and biggest thing on the camera mm. yeah and i think it really works like you you really come away from both movies even though reeves is an extremely limited actor as far as bodybuilders turned actors go he has less range than arnold schwarzenegger but he does have a like a certain magnetism and i think that's because bava worked so closely with him and knew how to shoot him mm. Well, if there was one movie that you would suggest people who uh, don't know much about Bava check out, what would you suggest? Ooh, that is, that's a tough one. But I think the best movie to watch is a film of his called Black Sabbath, a.k.a. The Three Faces of Fear. It is an anthology movie that is hosted by uh, Boris Karloff. And Karloff also acts in the second segment of the movie called The Vertilac. And... It gets increasingly unsettling if you watch the original Italian version, where the final segment involves a immobile witch-like creature that was in one of the photos that I sent you there mm-hmm. with this distorted face, this old grandma. It's it's the most Bava-ish lighting scheme of all of his movies. Mm-hmm. And there's a really cynical, sneaky sense of humor. And I will spoil this. Because it's not used in the English version, which is why you have to seek out the Italian cut. But the ending of the movie that uh, Karloff has been hosting ever so seriously ends with Karloff riding on a horse, but the camera pulls back, revealing all of these tired, smoking Italian crew members (laughs) chasing him with trees back and forth to suggest movement in the forest. (laughs) And he's on a dummy horse waving goodbye to the audience. Oh boy. Like that to me is like Bava at his best is is a mixture of like the funny, the strange, and the genuinely horrifying. And so Black Sabbath it is. Hey everybody, it's time for the Shadow 13. Move over, 12 Labors of Hercules. It's time for Shallow 13. 13 factoids about the movie and episode Hercules Unchained. Go Adam, go! Hercules Unchained was a box office success. It was somehow the third most popular movie in Britain the year it came out, and saw many revivals over the following decades. They even made a comic book out of it. Link in the show notes. People just couldn't get enough of Steve Reeves' muffiny pecs, and can you blame them? Aeolus' song Evening Star was performed by June Valley. Last night, love was in those eyes. Valley was a singer with a few modest hits in the 50s. She was also, for a while, the voice of popular advertising mascot Miss Chiquita Benena. In the Italian version of the film, Aeolus' song is performed by Marissa Del Frate, who also had a few modest successes in Italy. Morello. 
This version of the song has an instrumental break, during which we watch Ulysses waving to some pretty girls parading along the beach. Another link in the show notes. The film credits the music of Evening Star to Tito Menzese. Menzese? Whatever, it's not a real name. It's an anagram of Enzo Massetti, the guy who wrote the rest of the score. During Evening Star, Tom sings... Hercules couldn't perform... Shut up about that. Because he's using steroids. I am not. Steve Reeves, in fact, spent the last years of his life promoting drug-free bodybuilding, even self-publishing a book called Building the Classic Physique, The Natural Way. Hercules drinks to forget. The waters of forgetfulness seem to be a reference to the River Lethe, one of the rivers in Hades. The dead need to drink from the river and forget their mortal lives if they are going to be reincarnated. The river also sometimes appears on the surface world, so be careful out there, campers. The French actress Sylvia Lopez, who plays Queen Omphale, had a promising career, but it was cut short far too soon. She passed away shortly after the making of this film at the age of 28. Joel's Invention Exchange, the Stevometer, is a hyperbolic tribute to Steve Allen, who was the first host of The Tonight Show, and more or less created the late night talk show. Well, Steve Allen, as you know, is the author of over 300 books and short stories. Over 4,000 pop songs. The board game Blow Your Own Horn. Allen wasn't shy about letting you know how productive he was. By the time of his death in the year 2000, the number of songs he claimed to have written had crept up to 8,500, including 400 written in a single day before an audience of people in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Michigan. Most of his songs have never been recorded or published. It also inspired a famous joke. Steve Allen's claims to have written so many songs, name two. <laughs> as far as we can tell, Allen never invented a desalination process for seawater, as the Stevometer suggests. But he did write a series of novels in which he and his wife, Jane Meadows, go on adventures solving crimes. Well, he said he wrote them. They were actually ghost-ridden. Oh, Steve. Oh, Steve. As the camera pans down to reveal that forgetful Herc has dropped the treaty proposal in the mud, Joel and the bots sing, Peace on Earth was all it said. This line is cribbed from One Tin Soldier, a treacly anti-war song by Canadian pop group The Original Cast. The song tells of two factions warring over a treasure that, in a sub-Twilight Zone twist, turns out to be an inscription of Peace on Earth. Crow name-checks Yuri Geller when Ulysses challenges Herc to bend a torch. Geller claimed he could use his telekinetic powers to bend spoons. Though Geller suffered humiliation for failing to demonstrate his powers on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, his exploits inspired a film that tried to make Geller into something of a mythic hero. Mindbender, directed by the great Ken Russell, depicts Geller's powers as so strong that he must escape military custody lest they be used for evil. In response to the line, I saw something horrible, Crow blurts out, Curly Sue? The film, written and directed by John Hughes, was an attempt to create another Kevin McAllister in the form of the titular pint-sized conorist. Curly Sue was a critical flop and is remembered only for being the last film directed by Hughes and for featuring Steve Carell's first film appearance. And that's time! I saw so many promotions for that movie. In the back of every comic book that I bought the year it came out, there was... Curly Sue with her arms folded, and I still didn't go. Yeah, the promotion, the money that they put into that promotion was unbelievable. And I had no idea at the time that it was a flop, but that's pretty funny. <laughs> and my pop filter fell down. That's the that's the power of Curly Sue. <laughs> All right, Beth, 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 Beth. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, ordinarily it's a shallow 13, but uh, I have a a special 
uh, treat for you. This is actually a shallow 14, oh. as I have an additional fact, a Bava fact, but not a Mario Bava fact. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, for you see, Mario Bava, uh, uh, he sired a son, uh, who uh, Lamberto, who is also a film director, and his one of his films would be riffed on MST3K, Devilfish. Devilfish? Yes. And uh, also, uh, of course, the Bava family name inspired the frequent shout from the Howard Stern show, Bava Booey. Thank you. <laughs> Boo. Baba Booey. <laughs> Those are facts that I had to share, but now we move on to a different part of cinema history as we talk about Hercules himself, Steve Reeves. Mm-hmm. Now, had you had any exposure to Steve Reeves outside of this, like outside of his Hercules stuff? No, and I, I even looked at his uh, film, what do they call it, Filmopedia? Filmography? That's there it. you go, yes. <laughs> the filmopedia. Uh, and... He, you know, he didn't do a lot. Uh, I heard he was supposed to be Tarzan. It never worked out. Uh, this is by far his most famous role. Hmm. Have you run into him before? Um, well, the only thing that I know him from outside of this is, like, outside of his Hercules role, is uh, the Ed Wood movie Jailbait. Boy, oh boy. Yeah. I uh, I have a, a word of advice, because, of course, I wanted to rewatch the movie fresh before we talked about uh, Steve Reeves' career and jailbait today. Uh, word of the wise, do not Google jailbait movie. <laughs> I spent the night in jail. <laughs> I was the jailbait. Um, yes, because the jailbait refers to a gun uh, uh, in the film. There's one line of dialogue where a character says, that's jailbait, referring to a character's gun. Not at all how you would take it now. Yeah, I wonder if that was just basically clickbait, to put it in <laughs> modern terms, to try to get people to watch this movie, because there are no scantily clad underage girls, thankfully. No, in, no. Uh, Not that I'd put that past movie. Ed Wood. Yeah. Uh, I, I gotta say, so I have never seen this movie before, so I didn't really have time to watch the whole thing, but I skimmed through it, and in doing so, I came across... The, the best scene I think I've ever come across in a movie, or at least the most like wonderfully inexplicable. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. I, so I came out of this out of nowhere, not really quite understanding what was going on. So the picture, this still looks like something from the Black Lodge. Like there's weird curtains in the background. There's two men sitting on a couch. One of them looks like Sigmund Freud. The other one is shirtless. Yeah, the other one looks like Paul F. Tompkins. <laughs> And then there's just a levitating gun pointed at nothing. <laughs> well, that's the classic Edward blocking of put as much <laughs> as you can into the one by thirty three frame. Yeah, it's amazing, and it actually made me think about what can be weirdly like masterful about truly bad movies mm-hmm. is, and especially Ed Wood, like the way he paces, the way he blocks. It creates this kind of surreal persona. Even the way that, that the actors are told to act, mm-hmm. like they always they just take a beat too long to get their lines, and they do them very woodenly. It feels like a Lynch movie. Like Lynch takes these these ideas and turns them into, you know, something truly creepy and and masterful because of that. But he's you know he he his actors act woodenly. They do strange things. Uh, you have these very odd set pieces like i wonder if lynch was secretly an ed wood fan 
I believe he was, but also when you watch David Lynch anything, you at least for me, I can't help but wonder, it's like, how much of this was done on purpose? <laughs> Some of it definitely seems to be accidental because it drifts from being like a, a masterful movie where or, or TV show in the case of his Twin Peaks series, where you feel like you are consciously being guided by something versus uh, the kind of accidental qual- uh, the quality of like, oh, this is not an actor that I'm listening to right now. This is someone that David Lynch finds interesting. Yeah. Um, and of course you get that, uh, less out of vision with Ed Wood and more because it's all that he had. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think, you know, the sets that you're marking out were like the scene, this is the climax of the movie, which is the best part of the movie. I think this is probably jailbait is Ed Wood's most competent movie. I'd be really interested in the mail that we get to see if people agree or disagree with that. Um, cause I think it's very middle of the road for the most part. And the acting is the least egregious of uh, all of the uh, Ed Wood performances that I've mm-hmm. seen. Um, I'd say most of it is pretty competent. The dad is in jailbait is quite bad, but he's just a charming old man. <laughs> right. Oh, I just was fascinated about the set in this movie too, which part of it looks like, um, the uh sinister urge set a little bit yeah and that kitchen there's something so creepy about that goddamn kitchen and he (laughs) uses it all like it almost seems like he's being deliberate about how he's taking something so pedestrian you know something as as pedestrian as a kitchen and then it has a weird wallpaper and actors are walking in and doing strange things it gives it this kind of magritte sense of like juxtaposition about it like i don't it's i kind of want to write a an article about this movie well edward is nothing if not stylish um, <laughs> uh admittedly once again out of out of necessity you get uh, a weird visual shorthand with him at all times that results in some very compelling images that's why like i would never say edward is the worst film director just because even this jailbait like i don't consider this to be one of his highlights but it gets crazy entertaining at the end. And that's when the main baddie, who, as I said before, looks like comedian Paul F. Tompkins nowadays, uh, decides to go full face off and uh, forces the doctor, who is the father of the, uh, <laughs> the jailbait carrying uh, son slash lead from this movie, forces him to alter his face Mm. and so he's bandaged and smoking for like a chunk of time after the doctor reluctantly agrees to perform plastic surgery on this criminal and the amazing twist (laughs) because the criminal does not want to be connected to a robbery at a theater uh the when the uh bandages are pulled off at the end of the movie the police uh, one of whom is, of course, Steve Reeves. The police mm-hmm. come in, and they see that uh, though he no longer has the face of a criminal, he has the falsely accused son's face, <laughs> who was an accessory to the crime, yes, but not the criminal mastermind. And so they they go after him instead. And the <laughs> revealing of the face change, I'm convinced, is the inspiration for Tim Burton's The Mirror in uh, his 1989 Batman <laughs> Yeah, wasn't the inspiration for uh, Nick Cage's face-off 
I mean, maybe it depends on how how uh, how much John Woo studies and loves Ed Wood. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past Sam Raimi to love the bandaged look when uh, thinking up uh, the look for his character Darkman <laughs> with Liam Neeson in 1990. But yeah, uh, Steve Reeves. Steve Reeves is here with a uh, with a very brief beefcake shot where he's just randomly like putting his shirt back on <laughs> in the movie to kind of show off his pecs. Oh, I missed that. And I gotta say, I think Mario Bava has has a point. Like, without that beard, he's kind of like he's handsome, but he's he he doesn't stand out much. Um, yeah, there and and that was the funny thing is that even though Steve Reeves is so iconic as Hercules, and again, this this could be really more credit to Bava than Reeves, um, he really stands out in Hercules Unchained. Uh I I found myself getting confused because not only like even though you have that shirtless shot. Uh, a, a little something for the for the thirsty Reeves fans uh, <laughs> in the audience, like uh, Wood, and I guess this is true of his general incompetence, is that Wood never plays Reeves up for his body. If anything, plays down uh, his muscles and his lean physique by kind of giving him like billowy clothes. Yeah, and uh, you know he just kind of blends in with the scenery. He doesn't really have a uh, a really noticeable or or forceful or, or or kind of character filled voice either because there's a, a notable difference if you're watching Hercules Unchained and Jailbait is that Steve Reeves is dubbed in both Hercules movies that he did. Right. So we actually don't know what he sounds like until now. <laughs> yes. And it turns out he just has a forgettable generic guy voice. <laughs> uh there's nothing there's nothing particularly unique about it. Uh now one of the things I found out is that, okay, there's apparently two different dubs for uh, for for the uh, the Hercules movies. Uh, in the original dub of the first Hercules, uh, his dub was done by Brent Morrison, or sorry, Brett Morrison, who was the voice of the Shadow from 1945 to 54. All right. And then there was a second dub that was done by Tetra Studios that we talked about in our episode on KTMA 04, Gamera versus Baragon, episode 21 of It's Just a Show. They're really good at what they do. Yeah, and so they do the much better dubs of the of the Hercules movies that are sometimes a bit tricky to find on DVD because sometimes you get the original dub that was not heard in the States with Brett Morrison. However, uh, from digging around here, it looks like the voice in at least Hercules Unchained and possibly for the teacher dub of the original Hercules uh, was done by an actor named George Cano, but I can't find any IMDb information on him. That was just something I found in uh, some production information about the two Hercules movies. Beth, I'm surprised that you like these sketches just because you have the tease of Michael J. Nelson as Steve Reeves, but at no point do you see Michael J. Nelson with his shirt off. <laughs> Mike's pretty attractive in these segments. I it's the beard. <laughs> Mario Baba was right. He's got a real presence. Yeah, it works for him. So I enjoyed that. I I'm enjoyed... sorry, I just I have to interject. I really like the dopey version of Steve Reeves that we get <laughs> yeah. here, where he's just an overgrown fat frat boy who's now temping. Yeah, Mike always did dumb guys really well. Uh, and I I really love the the like the the, the Roach uh, invention is fine, but I I, I adore the Stevo meter, <laughs> and uh, you know I I would really only. 
appreciate and understand Steve Allen as kind of a cultural osmosis thing because I know him best from his appearances on The Simpsons, uh, such as his unforgettable delivery of I Carumba. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think we're both too young to really get Steve Allen, so we only know him by kind of sideways references to him in early 90s shows mm-hmm. by people who do know who he is. But, uh, you know, the the fun thing about this is in the Steve-O-Meter, you know, it's it, uh, it has him, uh, they, they name him as the inventor of movie sign. And what I, I like about this is I've only recently found out that movie sign exists as a reference to David Lynch's Dune. Really? Where they had the worm sign oh, <laughs> about boy. the sandworms. And I had no idea. I just thought movie sign was just the language of the show and was just pure creativity. So what I like about this joke is that it implies that Steve Allen wrote Dune. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think everybody's favorite sketch uh, from this episode is the gypsy and the Hellenic ideal. Uh-huh. Yes, I've made this my ringtone. <laughs> it starts off with Crow and Servo singing uh, Hail to Eden, which I believe is from Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. That would be the Space Hippies episode. Now, is is the Space Hippie one the one where uh, Leonard, where Spock gets... No, it's not where he gets by. jizzed on by flowers. That's a different, <laughs> okay. that's a different hippie episode. <laughs> okay. Star Trek Season 3 is noticeably not good. But anyway, so, and then Gypsy comes on, and this is apparently her her setup. She's she's creating a setup so she can sing her torch song and bang her head against a uh, liar. <laughs> it's the best she can do. <laughs> I don't know why this is so funny, but it is so funny. I, I, think, I think it just has to do with, you know, what I would say... The Joel era has in space is the, the, this Pee Wee's Playhouse vibe, and that's exactly what this is. This kind of sugar rush uh, <laughs> that you get with a wild "let's try it" idea, and it makes a certain kind of logical sense. Gypsy is singing and trying to play an instrument, and of course, like all the robots, uh, no, at least Tom and Crow have you know uh, decorative arms. She has no arms, <laughs> so she does the best she can with what she has. <laughs> which is to just ram it yeah i think the peewee's vibe is very well uh well considered also i just want to give props out to jim mallon like he was the one he he was the one who did gypsy for most of the mst3k run Mm -hmm. and that's a very limited character in a lot of ways and he he created something very interesting here. Yeah, I have to say, like, despite other hands at Gypsy uh, from the beginning of the show to its most recent incarnation, I, I whenever I think of Gypsy, I, I think of the doofy voice that he gave her. Now, do you know what song she's singing in this particular sketch? Well, uh, she starts off doing a variation of the main song from this movie, the, the Last Night song, but it segues into something else. We'll catch up. <laughs> I looked at the lyrics that she sings at the very end, which is last night I didn't get to sleep at all. Mm-hmm. It's a song from 1972 from The Fifth Dimension, yep. best known for The Age of Aquarius. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful song. I would hear this. Did you ever hear this on Oldies Radio when you were a kid? No. No, I think this is new to me. Okay. Oh, wow. Uh, I uh, Yeah, I'd, I'd heard this song. Like I kind of grew up with this song as one of uh, a bunch that would be on on 
rotation for golden oldies. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 I liked that there was this unexpected segue into a, a genuine pop hit. Yeah. So I, I also discovered a new song that I like. I tend to like the fifth dimension, frankly. So now the question uh, is, would it be better if Jim Mallon were singing the song as Gypsy? <laughs> What did you think of the last sketch where they basically kind of have a, a discussion about why this movie is what it is? I I like that. I think that you had a frequent thing that you get on this show, which is where the characters try to theorize about the making of the movie and why the movie is the way that it is, or so, just sometimes why the movie is as bad as it is. Joel and Crow, I think, get into the myth guy. Joseph Campbell. Yeah, they they actually get into some full-on academics there, which I appreciated. And then Tom's like, oh, for God's sake, it's just a distribution deal. Oh, yes, because he's going on about Joseph Levine, the uh, the guy who brought over these movies in the first place. Ironically, when you when you think about it, they're basically doing our show where we over-theorize about things that nobody cares about. Well, all our pecs are glistening, mostly because we've all turned off our air conditioning. Why don't we move on to Chris's final factoid? Okay, why don't we? So you mentioned during the show 13 that the song from the beginning of the movie, Evening Star, is sung not by the person who's dubbing the voice of Yole, but instead by June Valley. Now, June Valley, as you said, had a couple of modest hits in the 50s, one of which, interestingly enough, was a, a song that gets mentioned in the riffing of this movie, a song that's very near and dear to the title of this movie, she did a version of Unchained Melody. Oh, my love, my darling, I've hungered for your touch a long, lonely time. That's the worst song I've ever heard. <laughs> it's pretty terrible. It's definitely worth checking out if you want to hear an over-the-top rendition of Unchained Melody. Well, thank you for that, Chris. Thanks, I hate it, as the kids say. It's pretty bad. I wanted to make sure you knew about it. If you've been affected by the issues on this show, if you want to share your jailbait opinions, wait, maybe not, or if you'd like to ask Beth and Adam anything, get in touch with us. Our website is itsjustashow.com, or we're on Twitter at itisjustashow. We'd love to hear from you. It's Just a Show is a podcast from Megaphonic FM. Find all our fancy little shows over at megaphonic.fm. And thanks, as always, to all of our Patreon supporters. You can support It's Just a Show and access some superfan bonus bits from this episode and a lot of our older ones by going to itsjustashow.com slash Patreon or patreon.com slash itsjustashow. And of course, if you want to follow up with anything that was mentioned today on It's Just a Show, you'll find links in our show notes at itsjustashow.com slash episode slash 34. All right, Chris, I am just about ready to drink the waters of forgetfulness to get this episode out of my mind. What are we looking at next time on It's Just a Show? Well, the last few episodes we watched, we've had, let's see, boys in wizard robes, and then girls in bikinis, and now boys in sandals. So maybe next time, let's turn to Season 10, Episode 2, Girl in Gold Boots. Hmm. Ah. Intriguing. Have you seen this one? No, I haven't. Well, this will be interesting to look at because last time we were in the sci-fi era, there was a slow but steady progression as we made our way to the Deadly Mantis. So who knows what this will bring us? Let's give it a try. And it's available on Netflix right now. Yes, yes, it is. It's on Netflix. It's one of the, it's one of the chosen few. All right. Well, on that note, until next time, Hercules will return in Samson and Son. And remember, Oedipus actually never had a tragic flaw. Excellent. Take it away, theme squad.
Vest, 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 vest. Vest. 